Well, they say good preaching comforts the disturbed and also disturbs the comfortable. And for those who are deeply discouraged and upset, good preaching should provide some hope and positive perspective. And for those whose life is going just fine, thank you, good preaching should provide some needed conviction to live alternatively. And with our topic today of resisting evil or temptation, it's my sincere desire that I'm able to do both of those depending upon which side you fall on. Doesn't really matter which side you fall on. Some weeks I'm the one who's comfortable, who needs some disturbing, and some weeks I'm the one who's disturbed, who needs some comforting. We all vacillate from week to week. But as we think about this topic today, one challenge we face is that our culture is so desensitized us uh, from the gravity of this topic by repeatedly giving us images of the devil that are, or evil that are just not uh, very harmful. So when I think about evil or resisting temptation, I'm not picturing a guy in a red suit with, you know, horns and a pitchfork. I'm thinking more about bad habits I or those I love are trying to break. I'm thinking about deep discouragement many of us face particularly at this time of year. I'm thinking of those in really difficult circumstances, estranged from family members, or dealing with financial pressures, or seeking direction regarding a relationship or an employment opportunity. I'm thinking about larger scale evil or destruction or violence in our world that really needs addressing and sometimes feels beyond us. Whichever one of those resonates the most with you today or feels like a struggle for you, I simply want to reflect on what the Bible would say about that. This isn't all the Bible has to say, but today's passage offers an important corrective for us, one that should both comfort those of us who are disturbed as well as disturb those of us who feel quite content. Because the message today is there are forces working against us in this world that would seek our demise. But by God's grace, we are able to withstand their attack. For those who are comfortable, the disturbing message in that should be, we need to be aware of this reality. Otherwise, we won't take proper precaution. We'll be vulnerable to attack. For those who are already disturbed and in need of some comfort, I hope the truth of this passage does provide some hope for you that we need not be held captive by these forces. In fact, God has given us all the resources we need to stand our ground against the onslaught. And some of you, you have a lot coming at you right now. You have a lot of challenges and hardship. I hope it's a comfort to know that God has equipped you with resources. And it's interesting, even though there's a battle or warrior image here, the passage doesn't tell us to retreat or advance. The main command is just to stand. He says it four times in verses 11 to 14. For some of you, that's really all you can do right now. Just stand. Just stand, stay standing against the onslaught coming at you, and you can do it by God's grace with the resources he's provided you. I don't know which extreme you tend towards, are you unaware of the dangers around us? Whenever we travel, go to that bar with those coworkers, experience that recurring conflict with the same person, know we're about to say something we know we shouldn't, harbor unforgiveness, 
feel stuck in a habit, there are powers at work coaxing us to take one step deeper and deeper into whatever destructive way of life we're headed for. Or are you obsessed with evil that every flat tire, awkward interaction or challenge facing you is blamed on the devil, frankly, given him more power than he deserves? This is our final week in our Ephesians series. Next week, we're going to be looking at Advent, at the birth narratives of Jesus in preparation for Christmas. But as we come to this final week in our series, Whole and Holy, it's fitting this passage serves as a conclusion to the book. Paul has written so poetically, powerfully, beautifully about who God is, about the life of grace and love and reconciliation he's called us to. He's written about how our whole goal, which I hope you know by now, is to grow up, mature in Christ-likeness, not just individually, but us together, collectively, as his body on earth until he returns. And this has very practical implications for us on how we live together as a church, in our homes, and in our workplaces. And now, before he takes his leave, Paul wants to make them aware of one final reality. He wants to leave them with a warning and an encouragement. They may not want to hear, but they need to hear nonetheless. And it's surprising to me how today's message is as relevant as it was 2,000 years ago. Hear now the word of the Lord from the book of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. I'm not going to read verses 21 to 24, though I have them printed for you in your notes, so we're going to reference them later. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. I see two clear aspects of this passage that I want us to look at today. First, Paul describes the reality of our situation, what's really going on behind what we see. And second, Paul describes the resources available for dealing with the situation. God does not leave us without resources. I want to look at each of these in turn. So first, the reality of our situation. Leadership literature often says the first job of the leader is to define reality. 
How, an organ, how can an organization address anything without knowing first where they stand, what the current situation is? Paul does that here for us. And as, often, as is often the case, we may not like the reality before us, but it is true nonetheless. The reality Paul puts before us is this. There is a way of life God has intended for us, and it's real, but it is not the only force at work in the world. In addition to God's attentive, caring action in the world, there is another power at work as well. And he is opposed to anything God stands for. Look at verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so you can stand against the devil's schemes. The devil, diabolos in Greek, Satan in Hebrew, is translated adversary. This is the word Jesus uses when he teaches us to pray in the Lord's prayer, deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one, Matthew 6, 13. What Paul is saying here is that we have an enemy. Now, just hearing those words might in fact get the adrenaline going, we're ready to fight, but Paul elaborates on just what kind of enemy we have in verse 12. He's an unseen enemy. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, other human beings, rather against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The point is not to try to categorize different sorts of spirits here. As he's done elsewhere in this letter, Paul is simply piling up term after term for emphasis and rhetorical impact. This description cautions us against lashing out against other people as if they were the real enemy. And it also cautions us against assuming the battle can be fought purely with human resources. Now I want to pause for a moment here because we live in a society that tends to discount anything immaterial, anything beyond the natural world. We have sort of a schizophrenic view about this. We don't believe in something unless it can be proven with rational thought and scientific evidence. And at the same time, we have this fascination with the spiritual realm or otherworldly. Just think of the Netflix show, Stranger Things. This passage states that there are beings that exist in the same realm as God and human beings that influence and impact our world. Now, that may sound far-fetched to some. I'm sympathetic to that. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's been a lot of abuse of this idea in movies, books, even in churches. But if you think about it, it can also provide a helpful explanation for our experience. For isn't it fair to say that some things are just so heinous and horrible? It's worth asking, are people really that depraved? Or is there some other force of evil and power at work here? In answer to the question, where does evil come from? Paul says earlier in Ephesians 2, 2 to 3, there's always three factors at work against us becoming whole and holy people. The world, cultural forces, the flesh, our own propensity to sin, and the devil, our adversary. And just to what extent each of these has particular influence at any given time is not always clear. And what Paul wants us to see in this passage is that the enemy is not only real and unseen, he's also dangerous. This is no neutral power that could either influence for good or bad. 
On the contrary, verse 13 makes it sound like it's going to take every resource at our disposal just to stand our ground. Put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Verse 16 gives us a more disturbing and familiar, at least to the first century audience, of the enemy launching fiery arrows at its victims in order to destroy This was a common form of attack in the first century, dipping arrows in tar, lighting them up, and then launching them in the air to your enemy. Roman armies easily extinguished these first century bombs by soaking their leather-covered shields in water before an attack so they could repel the flames. All the powers of this dark world and spiritual forces of evil are actually very opposed to God and to any who seek to follow God. 1 Peter 5, 8 gives this graphic image, particularly since the writer has just compared the believers there to being like sheep just a couple of verses earlier. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Verse 11 warns the reason the devil is so dangerous is because he's cunning. Stand against the devil's schemes or wiles. This is the same word used in 4.14 of the deceitful teachers. This is precisely what makes him so dangerous. If he were so explicitly wrong and obvious, we'd be more aware and alert. Instead, he makes it somewhat murky, partially untrue. And then we don't quite see it as clearly. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen describes Satan as masquerading as an angel of light, meaning he doesn't present as explicitly wrong or dark. He presents as light. He's deceptive. That's why he's dangerous. If you're feeling a little uncomfortable or vulnerable, then you're getting it. Because Paul's purpose in sharing this verse This whole passage is verse 18. With this in mind, be alert. As any military strategist will tell you, thorough knowledge of your enemy, along with a healthy respect for their abilities, is essential for victory. We need a sense of urgency or at least an awareness of the conflict so we can be on the lookout for danger. Just as unarmed soldiers went into fighting our easy targets, so too are we if we are naive and unaware that we're under attack. Just think about any superhero or action-adventure movie you've ever seen. One of the first things that they do is let everybody know they're under attack because once they do, the people are more alert, prepared to fight. They can take whatever precautions they need to withstand Similarly, we cannot protect ourselves from something we don't acknowledge. Some have suggested one of the main causes of the ill state of the church, which it is today, is, I mean the church overall, is that we don't acknowledge the devil's reality, which is probably why one of the early church fathers said the devil's first trick is to convince us he doesn't exist. So Paul writes this to the church he loves And some of his closing words are, be ready, you're in a battle. To be forewarned about the nature of the devil's ways is to be forearmed against them. So says New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce. Because while we have an unseen and dangerous enemy, he is also a defeated enemy. Paul begins verse 10, 
Be strong in the Lord in his mighty power. I don't know if that phrase rings bells. I hope it does. That mighty power, the last time he used that was in chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, where he prays the believers would know God's power. And then he defines that power like this. That power is the same mighty strength which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, same word used in this passage, power and dominion and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And God has placed under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. Paul concedes these forces are real. But he reiterates they have been defeated by Jesus' triumphal resurrection from the cross. City Church, the reality is we have a dangerous unseen enemy, and that should cause a heightened sense of alert from us. That could be discouraging or defeating, and yet, notice the language Paul uses is not to make us fearful. It's simply to acknowledge their presence and to warn us not to be tricked by them. It's why he encourages us in the second aspect I want to look at now, to use all the resources we have at our disposal. Let's turn our attention now to all the resources God has given us to withstand the enemy's attack. And not surprisingly, the resources God has given us are perfect for what the, our reality is. Just as our enemy is unseen, so also are most of these resources at our disposal largely unseen. Spiritual forces can only be faced with spiritual resources. God has given us armor, one another, and prayer. Let me start first with the armor. And let me just say, first, I recognize that for many here, the image of war is unsettling, perhaps even distasteful. I get that. Remember, this was written in the first century. Paul is using images and metaphors his listeners are accustomed to. And in 62 AD, when this was written, much of the known world was under Roman rule. It was not uncommon for an adult to see at least one Roman soldier a day. So you can't quite blame him for using everyday language image that fits his purpose. Furthermore, as you may recall, and as verse 20 confirms, Paul is literally chained to a Roman guard while he's writing this. So he's simply making use of the image to warn the church of their reality. And if you recall earlier in Ephesians just how many times Paul goes off on his letter on tirades about God's goodness and blessedness and grace, you might, as some commentators raise, wonder just who actually is the one in chains here. Is it Paul or is it the Roman soldier? So Paul compares the followers of Jesus with a soldier, putting on his armor intended to protect him. And just as he compared the church to the body of Christ in Ephesians 4, we're to see the metaphor as a whole, not get bogged down by labeling this person an eye and this person a foot and this person a hand. And we're not to obsess about the different pieces of armor uh, and this equipment and what they stand for. They're mostly defensive for protection from attack. Only the sword of the spirit, the Bible, is the offensive weapon. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God, they are all like equipment to be donned before going into battle, to be taken up. And as Jesus followers, we have already come to an awareness of truth and righteousness, the gospel of peace. 
faith in God's presence and love and the gift of salvation. But we need to be reminded of it again so we're not vulnerable to attack. And these weapons are intended to be both something we receive from God and how we choose to live in obedience to him. In other words, we receive God's truth, and we also seek to live lives of integrity. We receive the righteousness of God, and we also seek to live right living with God and others. We receive the gospel of peace, and we seek to bring peace to a world full of division and dissension, and so on. Verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power can be translated, stand strong in the Lord's power. We need the Lord's power if we're going to win this battle. We cannot do it on our own. Spiritual enemies require spiritual resources. And as the present tense of this verb indicates, that is every moment of every day. So let me ask us, which of these resources at our disposal could we take more advantage of? Is it soaking in God's truth? The Bible? Is it having him guide and direct us more by reading his word? Is it practices that can increase our faith? We, have a, we as a staff have just begun a little practice of naming God's faithfulness to us and having a visual reminder of it in our office so we don't forget. Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God here. How about we start with even just one this week? Second resource God has given us, which isn't always mentioned in these verses, this is the one we can see, is the gift of one another. The imperatives throughout this whole section are all in the plural, not singular. You all stand firm. You all put on the armor of God. You all withstand. Moreover, the image Paul uses of a soldier wasn't intended to be an isolated soldier but a battalion, a whole um, group of soldiers who would work together. Alone, the soldier was still vulnerable, but as a unit, the Roman army was virtually invincible. Even the image of extinguishing the fires of the enemy is communal. The soldiers would stand in formation together, the first row with the shields out in front, the second row with it a little higher, the third row with it a little higher, so they could move together as one unit and still be protected from flames. We see this in Paul's own life, that he's serious about doing life with other believers if, if he's, and, and encourages us to be serious about that as we seek to follow Jesus. This is the whole reason why in verse 20, Paul sends the church his dear friend Tychicus. Paul can't be there. He's in chains. But Tychicus, who is there from the beginning and who's been with Paul this whole time, can provide the link to help them stay connected. If you look at Paul's letters, there are always individual people he greets. Some of you are just returning to church for the first time in a while, and we are thrilled you are here. We want this to be a safe place where you can take the next step of your journey of faith, whatever that is. So just keep coming. But eventually... I want to be clear. Our desire really isn't for people to show up at a worship service. We want every person who calls City Church home to have people around them to help them walk this journey together. 
It could be a Sunday morning community, or it could be a small group. It could be you just find one other person or two people to get together with throughout the week and pray and share your life ways. There are a lot of ways of doing this. But the point is, do it with others. We need one another to live this life. One of the greatest ways we stay connected is by praying for one another. The Jewish people had a phrase for this in the first century, let a man unite himself with the community in his prayers. We strengthen our ties for one another by praying for one another, which is why the third final resource God has given us is prayer. Prayer is simply talking with God about what we're doing together. It's a conversation with him, which, like any conversation, involves both talking and listening. Look at verses 18 to 20. The word pray as a noun or verb is used six times. If we stay consistent with that battle image here, prayer is like vital communication with headquarters when you're under attack. Picture any battle scene. I am an Avengers fan. Maybe you're a Guardians of the Galaxy, Mission Impossible, whatever. They always begin their attack by communicating with one another. They have to communicate in order to work as a team. And usually whoever's in charge or overseeing the operation communicates with them to give them directions. Prayer is like tapping into the command center to know what to do. We pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And in this way, friends, prayer is not just saying our prayers at mealtime or at bedtime, though that is great. Prayer was never intended to be so compartmentalized. Instead, we're to think of it as Klein Snodgrass says in his commentary of this passage, all of life is to be prayed, not just lived. All of life. In that way, prayer isn't something we do when we start our day and cross it off our list and then go about our business. Rather, it's infused into all we do throughout the day. We're to inflect Blur the lines between our talking with God in our minds and anything else we are doing in the middle of a meeting, in the middle of a fight, in the middle of your weeping, in the middle of a sermon. Invite the Holy Spirit, the guide, the healer, the comforter in. Give him room and listen to what he says. And we're to pray for all the Lord's people. And Paul says, pray also for me. Verses 18 and 19, yes, it's easier maybe to pray for people if you know them and you can pray specifically, but even if you don't, that is no excuse. Paul gives us two prayers in the book of Ephesians. We can pray for others. Ephesians 1, 17 to 19, you can look at. Ephesians 3, 16 to 19, even if we don't know people. Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened, that you would know the hope that he has called you to the riches of his inheritance and his incomparably great power. Man, what would happen if we prayed that for one another? Ephesians 3, I pray he would strengthen you with his power so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power with all the Lord's saints to grasp how wide and high and long and deep is the love of Christ. I would love it if we get to a point as a community where we are like Pavlov's dogs. Okay, that's an old, uh, years ago, uh, psychological test where these dogs were trained to respond to a stimulus at the sound of a bell. 
But I wonder, what if whenever you or I heard someone's name from City Church, our first reaction was to pray for them? Or when you open the newsletter and you see who's preaching, your first response is to pray for the speaker. Like any habit-building process, it feels forced and awkward at first, but eventually the muscle memory kicks in and the neural pathways get clear and it will be natural. You could pray for people, new people to the church on Sundays and the board on Mondays and the staff on Tuesdays and next gen, raising up students and children who love Jesus and are equipped to follow him in this hard world on Wednesdays, etc. Prayer matters. It's an unseen weapon against an unseen enemy. Let's commit to using it more. City Church, there's a reason we sometimes feel weary, under attack, discouraged, like we're beaten down. We have an enemy. He's an unseen enemy, but he's powerful nonetheless. That doesn't mean we need to fear him or need to retreat. We acknowledge his presence. We remain on guard and alert, but we need not fear. Our God has already won the victory. That's why there's no need for attack. Instead, we are called to just stand, stand firm with the resources God had provided us, the equipment we need to protect us, the gift of one another where we sometimes huddle to withstand the attack, and the gift of praying in the Spirit. And as we do, we, are, we will find we are growing into whole and holy people, individually and collectively as a church, more and more with each passing day.